Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll & Mori. We're your co-hosts, Mona Lombardo and Jason Crawford, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Due to popular demand, we're joined by Sarah Hill as our returning guest today. Sarah practices in the firm's government contracts group, where she focuses on False Claims Act litigation, internal and government investigations, and contract disputes. Welcome back, Sarah. Thanks. It's great to be back. Back in October, we had Sarah on the podcast to discuss potential FCA cases that the Supreme Court might hear during the upcoming term. We're now past the halfway point of the term, and as we record this on March 19th, we've just returned from the High Court, where the justices heard oral argument in Kachais Consultancy versus U.S. XRL Hunt. At first glance, one might think that a statutory interpretation case about the FCA's statute of limitations would be dry and technical. And we've been up since early this morning to make sure that we got a seat. But there was little risk of falling asleep during the argument, which featured lively questioning from a very active bench. So we thought we'd use today's podcast to discuss the argument and to look ahead to what a decision in Hunt could mean for FCA practitioners. Before we dive into our discussion of the case in today's argument, Sarah, can you set the stage by providing a quick overview of 31 U.S.C. section 3731b1 and b2? Because much of today's argument focused on interpretations of those provisions. Sure thing, Jason. So the FCA has a two-part statute of limitations. The first part at section 3731b1 allows an FCA action to be brought up to six years from the date of the violation. The second part of the statute of limitations, which is 3731b2, extends the limitation period for three years after the date when facts material to the right of action are known or reasonably should have been known by the official of the United States charged with responsibility to act in the circumstances. But in no event can an action be brought more than 10 years after the date on which the violation is committed. So it's worth noting that prior to 1986, the language in Section 3731b2 did not exist, and all FCA actions had to be filed within six years of the alleged fraud. But Congress grew concerned that viable causes of action were being time-barred because the fraud was discovered too late. So this prompted Congress to add 3731b2 as part of the seminal 1986 amendments to the FCA. So in a nutshell, 3731b2 is a tolling rule that affords the plaintiff more time if the fraud is not discovered in the six-year period after the violation occurred. But the 10-year mark is a hard deadline for filing in all of these cases. Thanks for that summary. It's worth noting that nowhere in b1 or b2 is there any mention at all of relators. It simply refers to when a civil action can be brought. And so in Hunt, the question presented is, one, whether a relator can rely on the tolling provision at 3731b2 in Ketam suits where the government has declined intervention, and if so, two, whether a relator constitutes an official of the United States for purposes of 3731b2. The petitioner in this case, Cochise Consultancy, argues that b2's tolling provision cannot be applied in non-intervened cases, or alternatively, if it does apply, that it's the relator's knowledge of the fraud 
that starts the clock running as opposed to the government's knowledge. In contrast, the respondent, or later Billy Joe Hunt, makes a plain language argument that B2 applies in all FCA cases, including those where the government declines intervention. So in recent years, the Supreme Court has shown a big interest in the False Claims Act, and this will be the fourth time in five terms that they've heard a case involving the FCA. Mana, of all the FCA-related cert petitions currently pending before the court, can you explain why the justices decided to hear this case on the FCA's statute of limitations? Yes, of course. Well, the issue before the court in Hunt stems from the second part of the statute of limitations, section 3731b2, which, as Sarah explained, allows for an FCA suit to be filed up to three years after the date when facts material to the right of action are known. The application of this provision is fairly straightforward in cases where the government intervenes. It's commonly used to cover conduct that the government did not learn about within the six-year period after the date of the claim, but the violation is uncovered before the 10-year period has run. But interpreting 3731b2 is more complicated in cases where the government declines intervention and the relator proceeds alone. So this is because the time period in b2 is triggered by the government's knowledge, yet if the government does not intervene, it's not a party to the case. And courts of appeals have had different approaches to dealing with that tension, resulting in a three-way split among circuits, which is likely what prompted the court to hear this case. So before we describe the nature of the split, I think it's worth talking about the facts from Hunt, which are interesting in their own right, and may help illustrate how the various interpretations of 3731b2 can be outcome determinative depending on where a case is filed. Statute of limitations issues can sometimes seem dry, but the factual background section from the lower court's decision in Hunt makes for interesting reading. In 2006, the relator, Billy Joe Hunt, was working for a prime contractor in Iraq that was responsible for cleaning up munitions left behind by retreating soldiers. Defendant Kuchais Consultancy was awarded a subcontract to provide security services on this cleanup project. In his Ketam complaint, Hunt alleges that the subcontract was originally awarded to another company, but this was rescinded and awarded to Kuchais at the direction of an Army Corps of Engineers contracting officer whom Kuchais allegedly bribed with trips and gifts. Moreover, the directive rescinding the award had to be signed by another Army Corps contracting officer who happened to be legally blind and who relied on the CO that Kuchais had allegedly bribed to describe the document that he was signing. According to the allegations in the complaint, the recipient of the bribes did not disclose to his blind colleague that the directive rescinded the award so that it would be awarded to Kuchais. Hunt would eventually report these findings to the government, but it was not until 2010 when he was interviewed by FBI agents in connection with his role in a separate kickback scheme. During the interview, Hunt told the agents about the scheme involving the Cochise subcontract. And for his role in the separate kickback scheme, Hunt pled guilty and served 10 months in federal prison. After his release from jail in November 2013, Hunt filed a Ketam suit under seal. The government declined intervention, and the district court granted the motion to dismiss, finding that the claim was time-barred under the six-year limitations period because Hunt had waited more than seven years after the fraud had occurred to file suit. Mona, do you want to take it from there and describe what happened on appeal and how the outcome would have been different if Hunt had filed his case in another circuit? Yes. So on appeal, the 11th Circuit reversed, finding that nothing in Section 3731b2 
says that its limitation period is unavailable to relators when the government declines to intervene. In addition to that, the 11th Circuit concluded that the period begins to run when the pertinent federal government official, not the relator, first learns of the fraud. So applying this standard, the 11th Circuit found that Hunt's suit was timely because he had filed suit within three years of when the government learned of the fraud at his FBI interview and within 10 years of when the fraud occurred. In response, Cochise and the prime contractor filed a petition of writ of certiori, which the court granted in November of last year. And as you noted, Jason, the outcome of this case could have been different if Hunt had filed in another circuit. So for example, if he'd filed in the fourth or 10th circuits, he would have been out of luck because those circuits had found that section 3731b2 is only available in cases where the government intervenes. Those circuits considered it absurd that the statute of limitations could be triggered by the knowledge of a non-party, the government. So they interpreted the provision to avoid that result and they do not allow relators to invoke B2 at all. Now, if the relator had filed suit in the Ninth Circuit, his suit would still be time barred, but for different reasons. Going back to Sarah's earlier explanation, recall that under section 3731B2, the three-year period begins to run when material facts are known or should be known by the official of the United States charged with the responsibility to act. So in the Ninth Circuit, a relator may rely on the tolling provision of section 3731B2, even when the government declines to intervene. However, to avoid a situation where the statute of limitations is triggered by a non-party, the Ninth Circuit has held that it is the relator who is deemed the official of the United States charged with responsibility to act, and whose knowledge matters because the relator is stepping into the shoes of the government. And so under the Ninth Circuit standard, Hunt's case would still be time barred, even though the FBI didn't know of the facts until 2010, because Hunt knew of the material facts earlier, such that the three years had elapsed at the time he filed his suit in 2013. So to summarize it, in deciding to hear the case, the court appears poised to address whether relators can invoke 3731b2, and if so, whose knowledge, the relators or the government's, starts the running of the clock. Thanks, Mona. And it's worth remembering the practical importance of this decision, because the government generally intervenes in less than 20% of the cases that are filed in a given year, so the Hunt decision could potentially affect the remaining 80% of cases where the government doesn't intervene. So the implications of determining whether the default limitation for filing suit is six years or 10 years are significant. Turning now to the oral argument, the relator argued that the Supreme Court should affirm the 11th Circuit's ruling that the complaint was timely because a plain language reading of section 3731b makes clear that the provision applies to relators regardless of the government's subsequent decision to intervene or to decline. On the other hand, Cochise argued that the 11th Circuit got it wrong when it employed a hyper-literal reading of the provision while ignoring contextual guidepost. But Cochise's argument that the court should look beyond the plain text of the provision was met with apparent opposition by some on the court. On the question of who could take advantage of the tolling provision, Justice Ginsburg commented that there is no distinction in the text between the United States stepping in as an intervener or the Ketam plaintiff going it alone. And Justice Kavanaugh stated that he did not see any ambiguity in the plain text such that, as a matter of statutory interpretation, the court could conclude that Congress didn't mean what it said. Justice Alito had perhaps the most memorable quote of the morning when he observed that the case was interesting because it created a, quote, 
statutory interpretation dilemma, end quote, and he referred to the FCA as, quote, a terribly drafted statute, end quote, and suggested that if he had to grade the drafters, he would give them a failing grade. While much of the argument focused on issues of statutory interpretation regarding these provisions, the back and forth also included discussion of how Section 3731B fits within the text of the broader statutory scheme, as well as discussion of the potential policy implications of the court's ruling. Kochaif argued that under the 11th Circuit's ruling, a relator could intentionally delay the filing of the suit in cases of ongoing fraud to increase the size of the potential recovery. This prompted Chief Justice Roberts to observe that this concern of a relator waiting in the weeds was really more of an academic argument because there are safeguards in place, such as the first to file bar, that discourage relators from delaying the disclosure of fraud to maximize recovery. And Justice Sotomayor noted an additional incentive for timely filing. If a relator is dilatory in bringing action, this can be a factor that's considered when determining the relator's share of the proceeds. Kochaif also argued that the 11th Circuit's ruling would lead to a host of counterintuitive results that Congress could not possibly have intended. For example, if the government's knowledge starts the running of the clock for the relator to file a claim under B-2, the relator could have more time to file suit than the government would under the same circumstances. In fact, this is exactly what happened in Hunt. The relator waited seven years to file suit from the time he learned of the fraud in 2006. Had an official of the United States with knowledge of the same facts waited seven years, the claim would have been time-barred under both B-1 and B-2. Justice Sotomayor recognized that the 11th Circuit's interpretation might give relators more time to file than the government in some circumstances, but she observed that this was not necessarily inconsistent with congressional intent, especially when considering the broader purpose of the FCA, which is, quote, to ensure that when some fraud has occurred against the United States, that there is a recovery for the United States. So even though the government elected not to intervene in the Hunt case, the Solicitor General was given an opportunity to weigh in. Sarah, what was the Department of Justice's argument to the court? So at oral argument, the government said clearly that the statute of limitations should be the same regardless of whether the government intervenes or not. Moreover, it's the government's position that a relator's knowledge of fraud does not trigger the running of the clock under Section 3731b2 because even when the relator steps into the shoes of the government, it is not acting as an official of the United States. This argument appeared to resonate with Justice Ginsburg, who noted that even if a relator is acting as the agent of the government when filing a KETAM suit, the language of the statute clearly makes reference to knowledge of the relevant government official, and as she pointed out, agent and official are not the same thing. In other words, relator's alternative argument that the clock should start running under B2 based on the relator's knowledge appeared to gain little traction with the court. While the relator and the government are in agreement that the clock should run based on the government's knowledge of material facts, the Solicitor General's office went a step further and took the position that only an officer of the Department of Justice can be the relevant government official. That question of whether an official within the DOJ, as opposed to an official within another government agency, 
has to have knowledge of the material facts is not before the court. But it'll be interesting to see if it gets addressed in the court's opinion and dicta, because that's another area where the law is unsettled, with some courts saying that only DOJ's knowledge matters for purposes of 3731b2, and other courts saying that other government officials' knowledge, such as the Office of the Inspector General, which regularly investigates allegations of fraud, can trigger the running of the clock. Now, there's always some risk in trying to read the tea leaves based on the questions at oral argument. But Jason, do you have any guesses on how the court might rule? Certainly, the defense bar would prefer that Section 3731b2 be limited to intervened cases in order to limit the number of cases where the parties might be litigating events that occurred over a decade ago. That said, based on the questions from the court, it seems like there is a majority of justices who are persuaded that the plain text of the statute does not support the interpretation presented by counsel for Kirchheis. And so it seems likely that relators will be able to take advantage of Section B2's tolling provision going forward, meaning that the default for pleading false claims will reach back 10 years from the date of the complaint unless the defendant can prove that DOJ knew or should have known about the material facts sooner. While this would certainly not be a welcome development for defendants, it would at the very least create some uniformity on this issue, but we'll have to wait to see. Okay, well, that's all for this episode. We want to thank Sarah for joining us today to discuss the argument before the Supreme Court in USX Relk Hunt. Our FCA team at Kroll & Mooring will be following the case closely and will issue a client alert when the decision comes down. In the meantime, if you have any questions, I can be reached at 213-443-5563 and Jason at 202-624-2562. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca.